I invite you then to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy. We're beginning, as uh, Pastor Josh uh, just mentioned, a new series in the evening service, and uh, we'll be looking at Paul's letter to uh, Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, over the next uh, few weeks or so. And we're going to start with uh, chapter 1, of course, uh, in the usual way, not chapter 2, and verses 1 through to 11. So if you have a Bible, you'll find it helpful to have it open in front of you. And uh, let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Lord, we do uh, thank you that we can gather again at the end of this uh, day. We thank you, Lord, that uh, indeed we stand upon a solid rock. And as uh, we come to the end of this day and begin in our minds to look ahead to the, uh, the week to come, we pray that the solid rock of your word would be uh, reaffirmed. We know that uh, we can trust in you, Jesus, and in your word. And we pray, Lord, that that firm foundation of the truth of who you are as revealed in Scripture would give us great confidence as uh, we uh, look ahead. And we pray for us as a church that this letter uh, of uh, your servant Paul's to Timothy would speak again to us and would do its work in our midst by the power of your Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we begin then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary 
to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is God's word. Some of you know that I've written a few books now. I look out, I know that people here have also written a few books. I don't begin the sermon by boasting that I've written some books, but it's an introductory uh, sort of element. And in my mind, I'm always thinking ahead of other books I might write at some point or other, as those of you who are authors probably are as well. And there's one book I know I will never write, which would be a book that would tell all the stories about being a pastor that I know I could never tell. I'm sure it would be a bestseller, but I would lose my job or hurt a lot of people or something. Uh, the, the best stories that you have as a pastor, you can never tell. And of course, part of that is because uh, people tell you things in confidence. And it's a great privilege of being a pastor. There are things you hear that you'll take with you to eternity and you'll never speak. Um, and uh, so obviously those sort of things I'll never speak in public, certainly not write about or publish. But then there are other things that are less sensitive that it would just be unwise uh, to use as illustrative material, however racy or interesting it might be or however many clicks you might get on your blog for doing so. It'd be unwise. It wouldn't be edifying. It wouldn't be helpful. It wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't encourage people. Uh, nonetheless, um, it would sell books. It reminds me a little bit of um, the Monty Python crew, who you probably know about, who were a famous set of comedians in England some time ago. And one of the Monty Python uh, group once published a book called Families and How to Survive Them. So in my mind, as I think ahead to this book that I will never publish, I've thought of enticing it, Churches and How to Survive Them. This book of Paul's uh, to Timothy has some things in it that, as you've already picked up, uh, are kind of not the sort of stuff that sell churches, false doctrine, and that sort of thing. And as we begin to get into it, we may wonder whether really we should be reading it even. After all, it's the, the Apostle Paul writing to his prodigy Timothy are we sort of listening in to something that is meant for the pastoral uh, conversation rather than for the church at large? Well, actually, over and over again throughout the letter, we can pick up indications that Paul is intending this to be a letter that is read by the church as a whole. One of the easiest ways uh, to notice this is in the very last word of the book. If you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, just to give a sense this is meant for the church as a whole, You'll see the last phrase is grace uh, be with you. Uh, but as uh, most modern translations have it, and the ESV very helpfully has it as well, it tells us that the, the, the Greek you is plural. So Paul is talking to the church, not just to Timothy, to, to you. As they um, say in the south, grace be with y'all or all y'all. Why, why you have to have all in front of you all, I've never quite figured out, but you do, apparently. Anyway, it's for us all, right? 
What's this letter about? Essentially, what Paul is saying, this will be the theme of, of the letter, is that the church needs to be healthy and needs to get fit, get in shape to proclaim the gospel. That's essentially what he's saying. And the, the core central text, I think, is 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Again, if you have a Bible, you might like to look at that. Uh, and he says there, if I delay, um, you may know how, so this is why he's writing, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So in the title for our series uh, on First Timothy, we've called it the church of the gospel. Obviously, truth here is um, uh, synonymous with gospel. Paul isn't talking about mathematical truth or logical truth. He's talking about the truth of the gospel. But it's a very interesting way of phrasing it here, isn't it? He says the church of the truth or the church of the gospel. And that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. We tend to think of it the other way around, don't we? That the gospel supports the church. But here, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. How important it is that churches are healthy uh, to proclaim the gospel. The church of the truth or the church of the gospel. So that's the key um, theme throughout the book. Paul was writing so that the church would be healthy to proclaim the gospel. And of course, Timothy is in Ephesus, and if you read um, the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul there and his farewell uh, to the elders of Ephesus had predicted that after he left, uh, false teachers would arise even from among their number, and that's exactly what had happened. And so now he's writing to Timothy, saying, you've got to remain in Ephesus and sort out this problem. You've got to deal with the false teaching. You've got to get this church more healthy so that it will be better at um, proclaiming the gospel, the church of the truth, the church of the gospel. And to that end, um, I I think it's helpful to think of three um, key pillars, if you like, that metaphor of pillar that Paul's using that perhaps is helpful to lodge in our minds, uh, to the end of the church being healthy for proclaiming the gospel. And uh, Paul indicates these three pillars or three elements that he's going to teach in the letter uh, by the phrase, um, the trustworthy saying. And there are three of these trustworthy sayings. The first is in verse 15, right after our passage of chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And that's that trustworthy saying is... is, um, uh, is landing right in the middle of, of a key element, which is establishing true doctrine. That's one thing. If the church of the gospel is to be healthy, there needs to be an establishment of true doctrine. That's the first trustworthy saying. The second one is in chapter 3, verse 1. And this one isn't about so much about doctrine. It's about leadership, which, of course, is... I mean, it's easy, isn't it, for a church like ours that talks a lot about the importance of healthy doctrine. Of course, that's very important, and that's really what the message tonight's about, because that first trustworthy saying is in that part of the letter, which echoes throughout the letter about false doctrine. But it's easy for us to think, 
only in theoretical terms, but Paul also is here very clearly saying that leadership, if a church is to be healthy, is critically significant. And so this is the second trustworthy saying, chapter 3, verse 1. This saying, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then he talks and teaches there about leadership, both the overseer or the overseers or the elders, and then about deacons, about the, uh, uh, the, the formal leadership of the church being very significant and important. So there's a strong emphasis upon the, the necessity of healthy leadership for a church to be healthy. Um, the final emphasis was most surprising to me when I was studying it to try and get clear in my mind what First Timothy is about. Uh, I've preached through Second Timothy a number of times. I've never preached through First Timothy, so it was fun for me to get my mind clear on it. Uh, the final emphasis was a bit of a surprise to me. This is in um, chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, this is the, the last of the three trustworthy sayings, uh, where Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And now, what is he talking about? I think he's talking about what's just occurred in the previous verse. Uh, so verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this other, so you remember the church of the gospel, that's the, the overall umbrella theme, and then these three pillars that will hold that up and make that secure, true doctrine, healthy leadership. But then this last one is godliness of character. Well, that's not a surprise to me. But what was a surprise to me as I got into it was realizing how, how much of it isn't about what we would think of in terms of sort of personal piety, you know, having a quiet time, being holy and, and, and moral in that sense. Though there is certainly quite a lot of that here too. Um, but he spends a lot of time talking about what we would think of as mercy ministries. Practical care for those who are struggling, for the poor. And how important that is that we do that as a church. To be healthy. So having given you the overview uh, of the book um, as we begin to get into it. Um, and remind you that it's about getting the church healthy, fit, in shape to proclaim the gospel through those three elements, those three trustworthy uh, sayings that, that, that connect the main pillars that he's using to establish the healthiness of the household of God in Ephesus and as it applies to us. Now we come to our passage um, this evening. And the passage this evening is obviously all about true teaching and false teaching. It's very simply structured around two parts, uh, verses 3 to 7, which is mainly, though as typical for Paul, he kind of interweaves things. But the first part is mainly about um, false teaching and why we should not accept it. And then the second part, verse 8 to 11, is mainly about uh, true teaching and why we should accept it. And so what he's saying here is that we should reject false teaching and accept true teaching because that will proclaim the gospel for the glory of the blessed God. So let's look at it then together. First of all, uh, false teaching and why we should reject it. This is verses uh, 3, 2 to 7. And you remember he said there, verse 3, I urge you, that is Timothy, to stay in Ephesus so you might charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, that is, any kind of false teaching. What was this false teaching? Um, devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Uh, 
So as he goes uh, through this, there are basically here two parts, two characteristics of this false teaching. And I think Paul is deliberately quite vague as to what exactly the false teaching was in Ephesus. Because false teaching has certain typical characteristics that he's drawing out here that we can apply to any number of different kinds of false teaching. Now, people have spent a lot of time trying to think through what this false teaching was. What were these myths and endless genealogies? Obviously, it's some kind of false Bible teaching because there are genealogies in the Bible. And if you teach through the Bible, you're going to have to teach on genealogies. But they've become obsessed by them. Um, And people spent a lot of time trying to figure out what exactly this false teaching was. As, As I say, I think Paul is deliberately somewhat vague because he wants us to apply their principle rather than well, it, it struck me as very ironic that in the, in the literature on what exactly was the false teaching, there's a lot of vain, endless speculation about vain, endless speculations. <laughs> the truth is we don't know. What we do know is these characteristics, namely speculations. Um... Endless, vain discussion, verse 6. It is a characteristic of false teaching that it is, and I I was trying to, I always, because obviously my background is British, I'm always trying to make sure I don't use a vernacular that is British that won't translate into the American vernacular and I still get it wrong after all these years, so you're, I, I won't use the British vernaculars in my mind because afterwards you'll just tease me for having got it wrong. But um, it, it's, just, it's just nonsense. It is, when you, I've read, because I was at Cambridge and you know, I, I read a lot of um, heretical <laughs> teaching through, my, through the years, and some of it is, you know, there's always, you know, God's common grace, there's insight in all sorts of things. I mean, I learned stuff even from Frederick Nietzsche, even though he wasn't obviously a Christian. And, but, uh, so there's always things to learn. But what strikes you about false teaching so often is that it's just babbling on. There's such a fundamental lack of clarity. Vain, endless discussions with no, no landing place whatsoever. Um, and that is a typical characteristic of, of false teaching. Whereas true Bible teaching, Paul says, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. Um, it, it's not just intellectual speculation. It's very practical. We want people to love. We want them to have a good conscience and a pure heart and have their faith built up. He contrasts speculations with stewardship. So the the false teaching promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that that is by faith. And that idea of stewardship almost has the idea of good household management. That's very practical. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for intellectual um, excellence, certainly, within Christian thought. Of course there is. 
nor am I saying that everything is simplistic in the Christian faith. That certainly isn't the case. I've got a lot of questions about a lot of things that I suspect I'll never figure out this side of glory. Um, Of course there's room for uh, investigation and But when we come to teaching, what we're looking for is the simplicity that is on the other side of complexity. The elegant simplicity that is practical and is going to actually help people in their family life and in their personal lives. And whereas false teaching, its characteristic is you read it and you think, what on earth is this person talking about? I have no idea. This goes on and on and on. Vain speculations. So that's one characteristic. Of course, the other characteristic of false teaching, according to the Apostle Paul, is uh, pride. That's what he's saying in verse 7, isn't it? These people are desiring to, to be teachers of the law. They want to be Bible teachers. But they don't really understand what they're saying. Or the things about which they make confident assertions. They want to be teachers of the law, but really they don't have a clue what they're talking about. The Apostle Paul was very blunt, isn't he? They're prideful. So false teaching, I think why to avoid it has become pretty obvious as we've gone through it. It's not healthy, it won't help you. Well, then we come to true teaching and why we should accept it. This is verses 8 through to 11. Now, he says, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So Paul is not antinomian. That is, he's not against the law. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law has a purpose. It is a law purpose. It is not a gospel purpose. It is to be used as law, not as gospel. Classic Martin Luther kind of distinction. I'll explain more about that in a moment. But he says here that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding what? What does he mean by that? Here it is, verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. This is, of course, in Paul's way of thinking. The righteous, those who are just by faith, that is, those who have truly become Christians. The law is not for establishing someone in their relationship with God. That comes through faith. We are declared right through God, through the work of Christ, his work on the cross, that is, we receive through faith. The law doesn't do that. Only the gospel can do that. So the law is not, in that sense, for the just. Who is it for? It's for the lawless and disobedient. And then he lists all the different um, ways that those who are not followers of Jesus, um, all the different kinds of activity that a society that is marked by rebellion against God uh, will have as its characteristics. Uh, whatever else, and he, he goes on and on through it, and then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that is contrary to the true teaching. So the law is designed, and Paul here is talking about a, what is in theological terms called a use of the law. 
And here, he's saying that the law is, has a use, and its use is for convicting sinners that we are sinful. That's its purpose. Now, Paul elsewhere, Romans uh, chapter 8, will talk about another use of the law. But here, he's saying that the purpose of the law, by the work of the Spirit that Jesus promised, is to show us that we really are lawbreakers. So here's how it works. We're, we're made in the image of God, of course, in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect, and we are made in perfect relationship with God. We're all rebels, and so therefore we have a rebellious nature. But the truth is, many, many people don't think they're sinners. I mean, if you, if you went downtown Chicago or even downtown Wheaton this evening, you took a survey and said, do you think you're a sinner? How many people would say yes? Maybe some would. Actually, it's Christians who tend to think they're sinners because they've had the work of the Spirit within them. They know that they're not only sinners, they're also righteous before God. They're also just. But the one who's not yet a Christian tends not to think there's anything too much wrong. They may think they've made mistakes in their lives. I suppose most people think that. But do they really believe that they are guilty before a holy God and deserving of hell? I think not. But God has a purpose in the moral law, the Ten Commandments, to put up a standard of what he expects of us. And the law, as the Spirit of Christ convicts us, shows us we don't meet that standard. A much greater length, this is what Paul teaches, of course, in the book of Romans, particularly Romans chapter 7, where he says that that, that last uh, commandment that uh, you shall not covet showed him that he was a lawbreaker. That is, his heart was not um, desiring what is real and true, and he was convicted. So the law has that purpose. Paul also, um, uh, in Romans chapter 8, it's not the only use of the law that I think Paul teaches him on. In Romans chapter 8, he says that once someone has become a Christian, then they're now able to fulfill the law. That is, now you are a Christian, those of us here who, most of us here tonight who know the Lord Jesus and have the Spirit at work in our lives, because of that reality, we are now able to begin to keep the law. Not perfectly. None of us do, of course. But we want to. We start to fulfill the purposes of God, to become like the, the people we're made to be by the work of the Spirit. And the law then has that use. It's a guide for us to show us what holy living is like. That's another use of the law. Uh, John Calvin, who talked about the three uses of the law, had a third use of the law, which was not for conviction, which is the one that Paul's talking about here, nor for guidance, which is the one Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. The third use of the law, according to John Calvin, was as a restraint in society against evil. In other words, it, it tells people what is heinous evil and helps protect society from going completely wrong and bad. At any rate... 
The use of the law that Paul's focusing on here is the conviction of sin. Not for the just, but for the disobedient, to show that we are disobedient. Uh, let me give a, an illustration that uh, is somewhat whimsical, but I think is helpful. I mentioned Cambridge already tonight. I'll mention it again just because it helps with this particular illustration. But in Cambridge, you go there, uh, in the, uh, the college courts, uh, they will often have, um, in the middle of the court, uh, beautiful grass. And you know the way the English are so proud of their gardens, right? And so they love to keep the grass sort of perfect. It looks like someone, I mean, it looks like someone has been out there with a toothbrush combing it sometimes. It's really quite amazing. Uh, sort of nail clippers, making sure it's neat and tidy. And um, when you go around the courts, uh, sometimes it's true the quickest way from point A to point B is across the grass, but very often it's not. You can get there just as quickly by walking along the paths. In, in most Cambridge courts, they'll have a little sign um, just about ankle high, which says, um, please keep off the grass or keep off the grass or we'll shoot you or something like that. Whenever you see that sign, and maybe it's just me, maybe I'm the only one who feels like this, but even as the quickest point from point A to point B is nowhere near that grass, whenever I see that sign, you know what I want to do? I want to go right across the grass. And what that's showing me, that law, is that I'm a rebel. Yes, I am, someone said. (laughs) True. But a saved rebel. So this passage tonight, for those of us who are Christians, when it talks about all these horrible things, isn't meant to make us feel terrible. It's meant to feel wonderful that Christ has rescued us from that. And if we're not a Christian, the law comes to show us that, well, we may not be an enslaver, but are we a liar? And therefore we need a savior. And this true teaching, the sound doctrine, the healthy doctrine, that image of health that goes throughout the letter, I think, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. All this aim is for his glory. And so we reject false teaching because it's meaningless and doesn't help us. And it's filled with pride and vain speculations. And we accept true teaching because, well, it leads to us being saved, established as righteous, And glorifies God by so doing. It's a wonderful letter. Its aim is that we be healthy as a church as we proclaim the gospel. And I think we are a healthy church by and large. I'm sure there are pockets of ill health. There always are in any, any church. But it's not something we can take for granted. We, we have to lean into health. In these ways, true teaching and healthy leadership and godliness, including practical care for those who are disadvantaged and poor among us. So that the glory of God, soli Deo Gloria, will be shown as we proclaim the gospel. I have gone through different ways of trying to stay healthy physically myself. 
And there are different ways of doing that. But the important point is to keep going, isn't it? And I hope and pray that this letter will be a way for us to keep going in our spiritual health. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that the church is indeed the pillar and uh, buttress of the truth. And we pray that we, uh, this uh, local church or college church would be that too. Help us to be the church of the gospel, healthy, to proclaim your gospel, both in true teaching at every level in all our different programs, with the right attitude that we will be promoting love, not controversy and anger. And in such a way, most of all, Lord, that pleases and glorifies you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.